Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you truly are a gracious God. You are a good, good Father. It's our prayer now that you would silence all of the distractions in our minds, that you would help us to be fully present to your word and your spirit now. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So this is the sixth and final part of our series, which we've titled Growing Together. And the idea behind this growing together, and and in some churches it's also been growing young, but the idea behind this is, is what does it look like for you to leave behind a legacy of faith? Now when we typically think of legacy, we often think of uh, financial planners. And what do they say? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? If you want to leave a legacy and an inheritance and a trust fund and an endowment and all this kind of stuff for your kids and for other students, work with me and I'll help you to reach those goals. Isn't that what we hear? We want to leave a, an inheritance. Sometimes it's a financial inheritance and a financial planner will help us to do that. Some institutions of higher education and maybe just other institutions, if you give them enough money, what will they do? They'll put your name on the side of a building as your legacy. You know, and so when we think of legacy, oftentimes it's about how good can I make myself look when I'm no longer here. You know, because for humans, we, we want this immortality. And when we're young, because I'm still kind of young, we don't think about dying. We don't think about what life will be like after we're gone. And so we don't think about it. But as we get older, we begin to think to ourselves, and sometimes it's our ego that says, well, how will I be remembered when I'm gone? How can I make sure that the life that I've lived on this earth, how can I make sure that people will remember who I was? But even then, it's still just about me. It's about ourselves. It's about how do we continue to allow ourselves to be remembered. But when it comes to a legacy of faith, which is what we've been talking about for six sermons now. Your legacy of faith is not about how good you were. It is not about how good you are. And your legacy of faith is not just so that people will remember you when you're gone. But rather, a legacy of faith is how you live your life of faith now and how you pass that on to to those who are still living See, that's the point and process and character and the whole encompass thing about faith is that it's not just about for something when we're gone, but it's about what does it look like today? How is it real? How does it have like hands and feet? And how do we share that with generations that come after us? And even not just the generations that come after us, but how do we share that with the people that are in our area of influence? And we've been talking about how the way we do this is about how we live our life and how we model our beliefs and our faith and how it interacts with other people. You know, so a financial planner will help you to leave a legacy of finances. Educations will leave a legacy on a building. Coaches who have part of like, you know, just ask any like diehard football coach, uh, diehard football fan, college football fan, they can point to their team or their university and they'll recall the good old days when so-and-so was the coach and and the culture of excellence. And so we look at coaches for this legacy of excellence. But as a pastor, my, my calling, my role, and my job is to prepare you to live a life that is worthy of a legacy of faith so that it will not only be fulfilling for yourself, but you can pass it on to those around you. And it reminds me of that passage in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, the work of God is that you believe in him who he has sent 
the work of God, your legacy of faith, is to have your belief. Your whole system of beliefs revolve around him, Jesus, whom God sent. That is our work of faith. To develop a relationship with God so deep that others will know about it. And so in this final installment of this series, Growing Together, we're looking at the, the, the title is Be Best Neighbors. And what does it look like to be a best neighbor? So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. It's not up on the, on the screens today, so we're going to just ask you to pull your Bibles up. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 3. Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Shikar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was around noon. So I just want to kind of stop here for a second. I wish I had this on the PowerPoint, but I don't this morning. But the Bible tells us that Jesus had left Judea and was going back to Galilee. And so kind of to give you an example of what that is, for most of you, you'll understand this. It's as though we were, I mean, roughly, okay, so it's not like perfect, but it's roughly if we're going from the city of Orange and we're going to Loma Linda. It's about 45-minute drive. This was probably a little bit further, but just to kind of give you an idea. For those of you that drive and have made that drive before, what's the fastest way to get from Orange to Loma Linda? The express lane. Okay, yeah. I didn't think about that <laughs> when I came up with this analogy. Okay, so here's how it goes. If <laughs> the, the, the answer I was looking for was you would probably get onto the 55 freeway if we're right here from church. We'll get onto the 55 freeway, and you take the 91 freeway until it turns into the 215, and then you make a right-hand turn onto the 10 freeway for like two exits. Is that correct? Right. So that's probably the fastest way. Now, here what was happening the Bible tells us, like, so when the, when the Bible writers use geography, it makes a difference. So it tells us that Jesus was going from Judea, in the, like, south, to, um, what's, it, what, what's it, Judea to Galilee. I'm so sorry, yeah. Judea to Galilee. So here's what would happen. Oftentimes, if you were a good religious Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee, we all know that word. We use it often. But a Pharisee was one of the religious people in the first century but they were very, like, by the letter of the law. And if someone stu out, stu stepped outside the law, then they were, like, the first ones there to, like, chastise them and tell them they're wrong and be like, okay, you're out of here, right? Like, that, that was their role. They were, like, super uber, 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 like, strict, and there was no spirit of the law. It was just the letter of the law, right? And so the really strict Pharisees, if they had to go from Judea to Galilee, they would go around, so think of it this way. I said from Orange to Loma Linda, the fastest road. It's like saying that if you were going from Orange to Loma Linda, instead of taking the fastest road that leads right straight to it, you would then you would get onto the 55 freeway, to the 91 west, to the 57 north, to the 10 east, and where would you jump back on it? On the 60? On the, oh, yeah, you stay, yeah, and you stay on the 10 all the way until Tippecanoe Anderson exit. So, like, the strict Jews, they, there was such a hate between the Jews and the Samaritans that, like, the really strict uh, Pharisees, they would take the long way around 
regardless of how long it took, because they would not defile, this is their word, defile themselves by taking the shortest route. And so they would go all the way around because there was this much hate and tension between these two groups of people. Now, if you weren't a strict Pharisee, you'd be like, man, it's not that big a deal. We're going to take the shortest route there. Like, like there was something, yeah, it's not a big deal. Now, notice which camp Jesus falls on. Jesus doesn't take the way around, but the Bible gives us this clue. It says he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. Now, does Jesus have to do anything? It's like telling your parents, like, you have to do this. Like, we know what happens, right? Well, nowadays you'll get a timeout, but beforehand you would get a spanking. Jesus didn't have to do anything. And what's important about this scripture is that the Bible writer, John, is telling us something very important here is that it's not that Jesus had to, it's that it, it was what the Greek word is, this kairos, this like appointed time, an appointed divine moment that God was setting up for Jesus here. And so it tells us Jesus went through Samaria and he came to a city called Sychar. There was so much hatred between these groups. I read someone, and this is what they said about them, right, between the hatred. It says, think about the hatred between the Serbs and the Muslims in modern Bosnia. Or the enmity between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. And then he says, or think about the street gangs in L.A. or New York. And then you'll have an idea of the feelings and causes between the Jews and Samaritans in the time of Jesus. So it wasn't just that they were like territorial. And, and if you want more history on this, I invite you to go back to Bob's sermon because he really kind of went through the history of the Jews and the Samaritans and why they hated each other. But just suffice it to say that there was so much tension and anger and hatred between these people. And it was religious and it was also political, right? So they like disagreed with each other on religion and politics. And Samaritans were still technically Jews. They just practiced their faith differently. And it was kind of polytheistic. But again, that's, go, to, go to Bob's sermon on... Um, and you'll be able to kind of get a deeper understanding about that. But it was so bad, okay? And I, I feel bad, like, reading this. But when I was, like, when I read this the first time, I was laughing, okay? So it was so bad that the Samaritans, during one Passover, the Samaritans scattered bones on the Temple Mount in order to desecrate the festival and make the temple ritual, ritually impure, so, so, like, think about, like, these high school, like, teams that, you know, these football rivalries and one team goes and steals the mascot and then the other people steal the bell. Like, like this is kind of the, the sense that we're getting, this deep running hatred. And so it says these Samaritans scattered bones because there was something ritually impure and they couldn't, like, they couldn't come to the temple because the temple was supposed to be clean. Now, before we make the Samaritans the bad guys, Jews would say things like this. The person who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. Now, that's good Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> when we think of, of pork, we think of, you know, the Old Testament and talking about that it was an unclean meat, and so we stay away from that. As Seventh-day Adventists, we still follow these um, dietary laws. So... When a Jew says about a Samaritan, those who eat their bread, okay, bread, like what you make sandwiches with, is like eating the flesh of swine, was like this really deep-seated, under, like, passive-aggressive, well, kind of aggressive insult towards this group of people. 
It's like, so I'm setting this up to give you an understanding that Jesus, which we think if we were to explain, you know, talk about him today, he would have been the best religious, spiritual person of all time. Would we agree with that? I mean, yes. (laughs) He was God in the flesh. He was the son of God, right? So Jesus goes against the commonly accepted religious beliefs and practices of the day. He puts his reputation on the line. He puts everything on the line, and he goes through this city. Remember, good Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. So Jesus goes through Samaria, and he understands that people are going to say he is not a very good Jewish religious person because he didn't go all the way around. So like, if they didn't, like if, if they didn't need more reasons to dislike Jesus, Jesus keeps giving them reasons not to like him because Jesus is going up against the, ex- the accepted, understood theology of the day because Jesus was going there for a reason. And so verse 7, 8, and 9 says this. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, so right, middle of the day, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. So think about what's going on here. Jesus has already basically said, okay, I'm not a strict Pharisee Jew. I'm going through Samaria. And then he stops at a well. And it was, and the Bible tells us that it was uh, at, at noon in the afternoon, like at 12 in the afternoon. And a Samaritan woman comes to get water for herself when no one else was around. And we're going to get to that for, here in a second. But I want to invite Bob up here for a second. Because when I was talking to him about this, he was super excited. And I felt like he could share about a minute or two about what was going on and, and just kind of the power of what Jesus was doing here. Yeah, you do. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really great because uh, we're doing John on um, Tuesday nights, and we went through this story not long ago. And um, researching for it, one thing you have to appreciate about the Samaritans is they were racially different. Um, the Assyrians, when they conquered Samaria, interbred a bunch of conquered people with them. So the Jews felt religiously superior and racially superior to the Samaritans. So when you come to this part of the story where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, give me a drink, she is astounded. She's taken aback. Why? And um, a pastor I listen to sometimes painted this picture well, a guy named John Piper. And um, he said, the best way we could get our minds wrapped around this scene is to take yourself to Jim Crow South. Jesus is a rich white man, or a white leader, because he's not rich, but he's a white leader, and he comes into a black town and goes up to a black woman and says, let me drink from the black water fountain. And she looks at him and says, why would you ask to do that? You're upsetting the social order here. This is all wrong. And What's beautiful about this story is that Jesus is doing that. You know, as Pastor pointed out, he had to go to this woman. This meeting was planned from the beginning before time ever began. This meeting between this woman and Jesus. And Jesus comes to her and says, I am going to drink from your cup. See, the Greek word that you guys see, and everybody in verse 9, you guys have verse 9? What is the word for dealings do you guys have? associate, 
Yeah, well, the Greek word really means to physically share something, to physically share something. And uh, my translation says dealings, but I didn't. I went back and I checked the Greek word. It is true. It means to physically share something. So he's saying, I want to drink from your cup. You African-American woman, me, a white guy, and Jim Crow South. That's the best way to get your mind wrapped around how the difference between these people. So when Jesus does that, it's just simply amazing. He constantly breaks down all these barriers we have. You know, we, we separate on rich, poor, black, white, brown, green. It doesn't matter. Um, up the hill, down the hill. We as humans love to separate. Jesus, throughout the book of John, breaks down all those barriers. And, and this is what he does here. So, Thank you, Bob. Why don't you keep going? You can have a seat. I know. Yeah. <laughs> For a brief moment, I was tempted to just let it, because they're doing this in their Wednesday night group, and I woke up not feeling well, but I figured all of you go to work with sore throats, isn't that true? So I guess I might as well, too. <laughs> but yeah, see, the stark reality of the person and the life of Jesus is one who's constantly bringing together, and, and even more importantly about the sharing you know, when, when you share, like, this cup of water, it's, it's almost like her cooties are going to be his cooties. I hate saying it that way, but, like, like, I don't share my straw with anyone except for Kara. But, you know, but there's this idea of if someone—so, you know, when we do communion, and I always say words like when we're taking from this same bread, we are becoming one— See, Jesus was constantly working together to make us one. Because when we get to heaven, when we experience eternity, we will all be one. And there will be no distinction between color or race or where we're from or what political leaning we had or anything at all. We will all be made one in the presence of God. And this isn't just about happening then. This is why Jesus goes out on the line and he does this because it's important for him that we don't just live heavenly when we get to heaven, but that we live heavenly while we are on this earth. And so Jesus answered her in verse 10. It says, if you, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So on the one hand, in the Greek, this word living water, it just means water that's fresh, water that's flowing in. But as John, in the Gospel of John, often does, there's a double meaning to this as well. And so Jesus is saying, like, here's something you know, what is flowing in fresh water. But he's saying, if you knew who I was, I would give you the real flowing and fresh water that reaches up into eternity. It's a story they would have known well. Remember, Jesus comes to a well. And a Samaritan woman comes to Jacob's well. Jacob met his wife at a well. Isaac did too. And so see, Jesus uses this Old Testament imagery that they would have understood. And he meets a woman. And now here's the thing. In the first century, A, a Jew would never speak to a Samaritan. But B, a man would never speak to an unmarried woman. Now think about this. He's coming to a well. This lady comes there, a well where it's referred to as Jacob's well, where Jacob and Isaac and other people had met their wives, and then Jesus begins a conversation with an unmarried woman. What do you think was going on? It's almost like online dating before there was online dating. Yeah, like, hey, let's go hang out at the well and see who we can meet, right? But you understand what was happening 
match that well, yeah. So there's so, like, that, this is what's so powerful about Scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament are intricately connected. You can't fully understand the New without the Old Testament. And so Jesus understood this. Jesus understood his audience. And so he kept going towards showing them these very real ways of how, like, how faith is real for them. And verse 11 says, The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You know, and it's like, if this was a comedy, right, Jesus would have been like, right here, like, you know, like if it was a cartoon, like all the like flags and lights would be like, like she says, where are you going to get this living water? And Jesus is like, get there faster, <laughs> get there better, it's me. And she asks, are you greater than your ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and his sons and his flocks drank from it? You know, and like Jesus could have been like, uh, yeah, I am. But he doesn't do that. Jesus never scolds or corrects people like that. Jesus then enters into a conversation with her, and he says, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning the well. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give, wait, the water I will give will become in them a spring of living water gushing up to eternal life. You know, we talk about a legacy of faith. We talk about what it looks like to have a relationship with God. It is a spring of water gushing up into eternal life. You see, Jesus was going there to find this woman. The way the Bible is written and this story is written to us, that was why Jesus was going there. It may have seemed like it was just a coincidence it may have seemed for this lady like, oh, whoa, there's someone there. It shouldn't be there. But Jesus was going there to find her. So we, have, we still have some more time. Can I, can I go on through the rest of this story? I feel like we have to get through the whole thing. So I'm just, uh, we're going to go a little fast here. Verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Obviously still not understanding what's going on, but that's okay. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Again, the difference between Samaritans and Jews. Um, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting. Okay, so we're going to keep going. The woman, Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the, fa the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So already, like, if a religious person had heard Jesus say this, they would have been like, you're not a real Jew. You're not, you know, we would say you're not a real Christian because you're saying these things. But Jesus is saying like, yeah, everyone goes to Jerusalem because we think that's holy. But Jesus is like, the hour is coming where it won't matter where you worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, listen to this, and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, what Jesus was basically saying is, if you want to worship God, there is no formula. There is no right place to go to to worship God. Now, I know this kind of goes against job security for me because we come here and worship God. But the point that Jesus was making is this. If you're going to a sacred site to worship, you don't have to go there to be able to worship God. Paul in Romans would later say that the way that you live your life, the legacy of faith that you have, is how you worship God on a daily basis. You see, we as, as humans, we think, you know, and, and by the way, I love church. I think it's the best hope for humanity because we are the hands and feet of Jesus. If it weren't true, I would resign and go somewhere else where the best hope is. But what Jesus wants from us, from you and for me, which is a part of our mission statement, that is to be the message of Jesus, is that to truly worship God isn't to know the right words to a song or come to church but to live a life that models this faith of Jesus and models this love of Jesus and kindness and grace and generosity so that your entire life, every word you say, everything that you do, even the things that people don't see, are you living a life that is worshiping the one who is worthy of praise? Like, this is what Jesus was saying. Remember a couple chapters later, they're going to try to kill him? Because he was, in essence, like lobbying these spiritual grenades at this religious institution that says, like, you guys have it all wrong. And Jesus says, the hour is coming where God wants you to worship him in spirit. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. So obviously they knew. See, Samaritans still had the Torah. They only read the Torah. But when, it, when he comes, when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us, right? So she's like, okay, Jesus, I got you. And Jesus says to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Like, it's so hard to step into these stories in Scripture. But think about this. A woman who had been ostracized because of her sexual sins. She had five husbands, and now the guy she was living with wasn't her husband. She had to come to draw water at noon because she didn't want to be jeered and sneered at and judged at and people saying mean things to her. Like, obviously, she was aware of what was happening in her own life. She was ashamed, and she would come to the well when no one was there at the hottest part of the day so that people would not see her shame and her sin. And then God shows up in the worst, like in, the, in that moment of darkness for her, where she even hides herself, God shows up and says, oh, salvation is yours. He, he breaks social barriers. He, break, he breaks race barriers. He breaks uh, religious barriers, political barriers, um, right living barriers. Like Jesus straight comes into her presence and says, I am the one who you're waiting for. She did nothing. She did all the wrong things. She did all the things that we would like look at and be like, oh, like don't go hang out with her. And Jesus goes to her. 
Verse 27, let's finish this story. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with, with a woman. All right, so remember, he, you don't do that. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? The woman left her jar and went back to the city. And she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? So she's still having a hard time believing. And they left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples, all right, pay attention to this next five verses. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Remember when I started the sermon, I said a legacy of faith is for that the work of God is to believe in him whom he sent. Right? So like the essence of our life is to continually be on a process of knowing and being known by God more. Like that's, that's our legacy of faith, right? Then Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus wasn't referring to the snacks that he had stuffed in his cloak. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one has brought him something to eat because Samaritans and Jews don't get along and, and you would never eat their food. Jesus said to them this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. You know, your life, the trajectory of your life must be to do the work of Christ. Your every word, your every interaction, everything must be to be the message of Christ. That is why it is the mission of our church to be the mission of Christ, to be the message of Christ. Are we always perfect? Absolutely not. Are there hypocrites in this church? Like one. <laughs> That's a joke, all of us. It's a terrible joke. Everyone's like, whoa, who's he talking about? <laughs> You don't have to be perfect to do the will of God. And you don't have to have your life perfectly together to do the work of God. That's, what, that's the point I'm making. The point is that Jesus is inviting each one of us this morning that what sustains us, what keeps you going in life, what gives you motivation is to do the will of Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying. He doesn't need other stuff because his life is being fulfilled because he is doing the work of God. I'm going to skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So the Bible, the story doesn't tell us that she changed anything in her life. The Bible doesn't tell us that she had her life together and then she gave her testimony. In fact, she still didn't have the whole story. But the Bible says that the Samaritans from the city believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. She said, he told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed two more days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Like, this is a story of cosmic proportion. Because if Jesus wasn't afraid to go through Samaria, he, he is not afraid 
to humble himself as the king of the universe to be a human in our likeness, live a life that is so difficult, worse than Samaria would have been to the first century Jews, so that he could then lay his life down so that your sins would be forgiven. He continually breaks down the barriers that we as humans set up so that they would come to a saving knowledge of salvation. So when we think about what it means that we are to be best neighbors, our neighbor is everyone, those who believe and those who don't believe, those who are a part of this church and those who are not a part of this church. We come here and we are filled We come here to worship and we empty ourselves. But when we leave this place, we are entering the mission field. And it is your calling to be the message of Jesus. Amen.